500 years ago he washed ashore the sole survivor of a shipwreck and upon the skull of the man who killed his dad he said i'm mad i must eradicate piracy injustice and cruelty and all my sons will follow me so evil doers will believe that this man cannot die the man the ghost who walks enemies beware the phantom's always there but you won't find the phantom he finds you G'day everybody and welcome to the next episode of Expand, the Phantom Podcast. Uh, not sure exactly what number this is going to be just yet because we're going to try and time the release um, for a certain for a certain time which will make itself evident, but we're recording it a little bit early. So today I'm here with uh, Jermaine as always. How are you Jermaine? Pretty good mate, pretty good. Thank you for asking. Very good. And uh, sadly, uh, no Stephen again tonight. Um, he's off doing family things like a good family man. So, whereas we've just left the kids. Making alone. a bit of a habit of this, isn't he? <laughs> he is. He is. Um, I'm not sure if he's trying to curry lots of favour in the lead up to Supernova or, or what's going on. So. Or maybe he's just in mourning that his that his football team sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it's not travelling well for him, and he's he's gone. He's certainly a lot less chipper than he was last year or in previous years. <laughs> Anyway, um, we could banter about uh, Stephen and how badly the Hawks are going all day, but we shouldn't do that. Instead, we should move on and introduce our special guests for today. They are a new creative team that is working with Fru in 2017, maybe new to a lot of uh, Phantom readers who are not familiar with their work, but I I feel like we're going to become very familiar. Um, And that is the, the creative team behind Phantom by Gaslight. And so today we're talking with the author, Christopher Sequeira. G'day. G'day, Chris. And artist, Jason Palos. How are you, Jason? Hello, everyone. G'day. Thanks very much for joining us tonight, guys. Uh, Really appreciate you taking the time out to uh, have a talk to us and a talk to the fans. No problem. So um, we thought what we might start with, guys, is just by way of introduction. As I said, many um, fandom fans may not be familiar with your work, even though I know that uh, you have been fairly prominent in the Australian comic industry for a while now. If, If we could perhaps start with you... Chris and then and then Jason, just give us a little bit of a, a history um, of yourself um, as as a contributor to the Australian comics landscape. Great. Okay. Thanks, fellas. Um, look, I've been writing and editing and even publishing comic books in Australia for a lot of years, going back to even things like Fantastic Magazine. Uh, then I published for a while under a banner called. Sequence Comics Australia and did original characters. So I, I do comic book scripts, uh, but I also write short stories and other bits and pieces. Um, and I also edit short story collections and things like that. And But my interests are usually always in the sort of horror, mystery, fantastic, things like that. And I've got a particular reputation, I suppose is the word, for uh, writing stuff set in Victorian times. I'm a bit of a Sherlock Holmes buff and have quite a few stories published in international collections in um, Canada, the UK, America, Italy, and even Australia. I'm actually editing a book that's coming out from a major publisher in, uh, in November called Sherlock Holmes, The Australian Casebook, and it's got stories by me and Kerry Greenwood, who does Miss Fisher Mysteries and blah, blah, blah. So this is a bit of a 
nice dream gig for me, combining superheroes, you know, because I've done Marvel and DC superheroes for both those companies, and getting to do, you know, Victoriana stuff, which I absolutely love. Awesome, awesome. And and what about yourself, Jason? I'll just ask you a quick question. Sorry, Chris, just a quick question. Um, what are your thoughts on the modern takes of um, Sherlock Holmes? Um, I can't get enough of most of them. I love them all. I probably, the one I probably vibe to the least is elementary. Not because it's a bad idea. I actually like the idea of, you know, Watson's a female and all the rest of it. That's been done a couple of times, but they sort of did that well. But the scripts just aren't as clever as, say, the Mark Gaddis and Stephen yeah. Moffat, British ones. No, I just I just had to ask. I've um I read a lot of Sherlock Holmes as a kid myself, and yeah, I've quite enjoyed the modern takes, especially the BBC. So as a Sherlock Holmes man, I just kind of had to ask that. No worries. All right. Um. So with that cleared up, Jason, can you give us a bit of introduction to yourself? Uh. Yep. I started on the indie Australian comic scene in 1989 with the first uh, Ashcan edition of Hair But the Hippo Private Eye, <laughs> which then turned into uh, a newsstand edition. And by the time I gave him a bit of a break, I'd done a dozen or so issues and somehow found my way into DC's Bizarro uh, trade paperback where I did a short Green Lantern story in a Wally Wood sort of EC style which I'd become a little bit infamous for because the later Hair But The Hippo uh, strips which I did for Australian Mad Magazine for a couple of years were developing into a very uh, Robert Crumb you know uh, counter sort of thing with heaps of detail and crazy cross-hatching and all that stuff, stuff I'd kind of avoided for a long time. Mm. But I hit my stride a little bit there, but then hit a bit of a brick wall because the industry, as it were, wasn't really able to support, you know, uh, a serious go at a, at a regular comic. You know, people were starting up things all the time that were not getting past the first couple of issues. So I, I've, I sort of followed that um, onto the internet uh, in the form of a few different strips, which I'd done for the self-publishing kind of, sorry, the um, internet publishing market, you know, via Lulu, you know, um, I don't know, what do you call it? Uh, uh, printing on demand, I guess. That was the, the next thing that everyone did, me included. Um, and just trying to find a way for original creations to get some kind of audience beyond other comic creators, you know, um, but, you know, we, uh, I, well, I say we, but it's really with me, just continued on, uh, you know, um, in a very lo-fi sort of fashion, but still developing, you know, my craft and, and sort of sticking sticking at it, you know, despite, you know, the lack of sort of publishing opportunities here. And I never did the, the San Diego pilgrimage, um, which everyone else <laughs> has done a million times um, for some reason, but... Where does that bring me to? Um, I dipped my toes back into publishing again with a final issue of Hairbutt Soft Boiled Tales, which sort of 
reached the the peak of that kind of Robert Crumb sort of super detailed style. I was even starting to do digital painting on the interiors in colour, but it was it's just I just couldn't seem to um, you know fulfil the vision I had for it just due to lack of money, I guess, and lack of audience. Really, it, it never really sold much. It, it it gained a degree of infamy, I guess, and I won't sort of mention the whole hip flask thing because that's boring. I eventually re rediscovered my love of uh, black and white retro horror in the form of Eek, which was sort of like a a self-published mono anthology where I tried to imitate the House of Mystery anthologies I used to love as a kid, which I only ever saw in black and white on the in the Murray comic reprint form. So of course I made it black and white and. Um, tried to imitate different styles as if more than more than more than, as if it was more than just me working on it you know so once again I, I pulled out the Wally Wood kind of riffs and and tried to recreate those comics of my youth and it was published by uh, Asylum Press in the States after I did my own edition Frank Forte put out the Asylum edition it sold about two and a half thousand and that just wasn't really enough for me to justify continuing with it you know because you know i've always had a day job i was a graphic designer for years but now um i'm a freelance storyboard illustrator and that's pretty much how i've ended up here in the blue mountains uh as a freelance illustrator working from home and um uh working for fru which has has been a kind of a coming full circle in a, in a, in a way because I, I knew Glenn from Fru for years because I used to hawk my comics to him when he owned Phantom Zone comics in, in um, Parramatta right. and he was always very supportive <laughs> of Aussie comics and he you know used to put his money where his mouth was and put a, an ad for Phantom Zone on the back cover which back in my publishing days really saved my bacon because I would have lost a lot more money than I did um, if you know shops like Phantom Zone and King's Comics didn't <laughs> come to the to the party with some um, a nice big check and a back cover ad you know yeah. so i've always felt a lot of support and goodwill from glenn which you know carries through till now mm. and um yeah. have you, do you guys have you chris and jason have you known each other for a while have you worked on anything together before or we sort of actually we i remember when jason appeared on the scene um geez mate you must have been barely a teenager with some with an amazing portfolio at one of those Sydney comic fan club type of meetings. That, was it Frank McConaughey used to run? Oh, was that in Surrey Hills, I wonder? Yeah, yeah. so it was, it was either Surrey Hills or the old Gaelic club or something like that. And Surrey turned, Hills, I think it was the children's, um, near the old children's court building or inside in the grounds or something. Was it, or was it the Eugle Club? Uh, one or the other. It was back at the yeah, same time, yeah. One of those, mate. I don't That's know. right. You're pretty young. You're younger than me. Yep. Uh, I just moved to Sydney. I moved to Sydney when I was 17. Yeah, and you had this portfolio. People's just, just jaws just dropped. You know, it used to be this bloke who, who had a small comics publishing company called Oz Comics. I think it was, yeah. Um, Frank McConaughey. Uh, yeah, Frank McConaughey, New Age Graphics, Oz Comics. And he published Fantastique. And, um, yeah, and so he was trying to build up a... A, um, a, uh, like a network of you know, um, keen, uh, enthusiastic people who love the art form and just yeah. word of mouth that was getting around. This is all pre-internet, so all word of mouth to die thing. And, yeah, I can remember you turning up at one of those, mate, and then and basically then you were a, a pretty much a semi-regular. 
Yeah, I think I came in just when Cyclone Comics were, were finishing up. They, was, they had a couple of issues to publish, and I used to visit Dave DeVries because I worked near him where he lived in Batman Lane, believe it or not. Dave I lived in it. Batman Lane in Surrey Hills. <laughs> and um, I used to go over there in my lunch break, and, and he'd be working on you know, various uh, magazine strips with Glenn. He'd be either colouring Glenn's bromides by hand with, with you know, dyes, or he'd be writing a script for Glenn. So they were like a team. And so... Uh, oh, Dan and Jermaine, that's a different Glenn we're talking about. That's Glenn Lumsden <laughs> we're talking about. Who, uh, Glenn went on, Lumsden, yeah. Who went on Glenn Lumsden, yeah. Glenn Lumsden, yep. The other Glenn we were talking He's, about um, Glenn Ford. Yeah, Glenn Lumsden should be fairly well known for a lot of um, Phantom fans because he did the Marvel, the Marvel one, and he's done a couple of covers and stuff didn't for that, free. Didn't he do that with Dick DeVries? Yeah, with Dave DeVries. Yeah. Dave, yeah. Yeah. And I think Dave Heinrich did colours or some uh, art assists or something, didn't he, Jace? Yeah, they moved. Um, Dave DeVries and Glenn packed up and moved to the Barossa Valley almost together and resumed their creative partnership there. Um, and Dave Heinrich lived nearby, I think, in, in, nearby Tanunda or something. And I visited their studio, or which was really Dave's house. And um, they just seemed to be living this amazing life where they lived in a beautiful house surrounded by beautiful countryside, working on comics. And as a, as a you know, teenager, I just thought, well, this is, this is what I, this is the life I want. Um, and I've kind is of that why you moved to the Blue Mountains? I've kind of replicated that, yeah. yeah. I, mean, yeah. I, I live in a house that has a view of Mount Blackheath just behind in a studio I built with my own hands, you know. Um, so I've, I guess I've kind of, <laughs> you know, imitated that, I guess. Unreal. Hmm. So were you, did you guys uh, read The Phantom as uh, younger or as children? Oh look, yeah, you can't avoid it. It's you know the most—it's um, <laughs> the most omnipresent um, comic book. Even let's face it, news agents that won't carry any other comics, any American comics, for example, color comics, they'll usually stock the Phantom. So yeah, yeah not, I'm not immune to uh, having followed the, the characters' adventures. Uh, not, not at all. Yeah, every every school fair that you'd go to, there's a show bag with a Phantom comic or two in it. Yeah. Yeah. So we use avid readers or more casual readers? I'm a cat more of a casual because I was a, I'm sort of still am, devour tons and tons and tons of comics a year and fan of yeah. comics to be included in that. But I do have, um, you know, preferences for American contemporary, more and more American contemporary adventure comics uh, and uh, indie comics. Yeah. Yeah, as, as a kid... Um the Phantom comics were always there and they were always sitting around at your uncle's house or something. And you almost kind of didn't need to read them. It was almost like you already knew all about them. When I saw 2000 AD, that was probably a big moment for me, big lights on kind of moment because it just seemed to have everything, you know, cinematic that I loved about comics, I guess. I, I followed more the Phantom in the newspaper strips because that was kind of the only comics you could get back 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 then. There weren't any comic shops that I were aware of, and I always um, liked, you know, the artwork in the newspaper strips. I just thought it was, it was super slick, you know. So was that more Cy Barry? Yeah, 
That's the guy, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess I didn't, really so, follow, I didn't really follow the names back then. You know, as a kid, you, you don't yeah, really, sure. you know. And, and then later on, it's even not even more unclear who's drawing it because often, you know, the newspaper guy would still have his name on it after he died. You know, so mm. they have all these signatures piled up in the corner, and you just it's just too confusing. Mm. So to give us um, maybe a little bit of a perspective in terms of your style and that sort of thing, who who would you say would be your heroes in the art or the comic world in terms of, um, for you, Chris, favourite writers and storytellers um, and for you, Jason, um, artists who, who you've admired and, and perhaps, you know, for both of you, modelled your, your own ideas on or, or taken inspiration from? Look, as far as writers go, um, I think you know, I've got different heroes representing different eras of you know, the contemporary, for one of a better thing, contemporary comic book. I mean, comic books have very much changed since, um, you know, there was a big heyday explosion of their, 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 their birth in the 1930s. I mean, and the styles and the tones and the stories and things have to change to um, entertain audiences. And, you know, Stan Lee was one of the first blokes to figure this out. You know, there's the famous anecdote about he wanted to do comics that were more like other fiction that he read. He was just about to quit comics and he thought, I'll start doing the kind of stories that I want to do anyway because, you know, everything else we're trying isn't selling. So what the hell, might as well go out in a screaming blaze of glory and sales are going through the floor and, you know, why not? That's how he started doing the Fantastic Four, which was a far more full-on version of a soap opera with, with superheroes. Mm. Um, they used to be, you know, mostly they used to be either nice or they'd have, you know, two temperaments, but not no no more shades of grey than two temperaments. You know, when they're nice and when they're maybe slightly grumpy or angry or something like that. And he brought in the whole uh, complexity, multi, you know, relationship, picking off each other, the heroes fighting amongst themselves all the time, like bickering like a family. So he was great in his age. But then there was a bunch of Marvel guys, the youngsters that came along in the 70s when I was a little kid reading comics, and they just blew my head, my, my brain off because they were sort of, they started to inject all this post-Vietnam philosophy and pop psychology and psychedelic stuff. They didn't even understand what was going on, but it was just totally, you know, it, it t- turned up another notch. There's been a couple of waves since then. Guys I like are all the, all the names you'd expect, um, you know, the Alan Moores, the Grant Morrisons, you know, and the Mark Wades, all these guys that are, you know, considered to be the most skilled and really popular, can manage to do something with these with these guys running around fighting bad guys in tights, and make it still seem, but you know, believable, entertaining. But I guess they've got to give you some emotional payoff, otherwise you just you just stop reading. You know? And guys like that, people they just amaze me and impress me. And they're the guys I basically, I suppose, I try to emulate them. And what about yourself, Jason? Uh, well, I think when I first I saw 2000 AD issue one, which I picked up from a sort of a second-hand stall somewhere, with Carlos Esquera's artwork on Judge Dredd, those, uh, and uh, even earlier than that, the Strontium Dog stuff, and the stuff he was doing for those British weeklies, you know, those ones where they'd have two comics in one. You know, one comic would yeah. would sort of 
end and then it would be swallowed up by another comic and they'd have two logos on it. And they always had um, those great Spanish artists. And so he, w- he was a, a very early influence. But as soon as I saw the uh, Filipino guys, Di Zaniga and um, Nino and all that on the um, black and white American House of Secrets, uh, House of Mystery stuff, that was I was I was done. It's just like just incredible, incredible artists that could just do and draw anything with you know with terrific black. I mean, I never saw him in color. I didn't see a color comic till you know a few years later when I went to um, you know uh, the comic shop Ian Gould's comic shop in Brisbane on Roma Street. Um, and then finally, I saw how badly they were coloured, <laughs> and I always preferred the black and white reprints because they were just so clean and. And gorgeous, and and later on, Gary Chaloner turned me on to um, Will Eisner, you know, and, and and there was no looking back. And then, but it all goes back to the House of Mystery stuff, the the, the horror line edited by um, the ex EC artist. What was his name? Italian guy. Joe Orlando. Thank you. All that stuff. It's still very exciting to me to look at. I just think it was it was a real peak. But of course, you know, Wally Wood, you know, the Mad EC artist. Me and my brothers loved Mad Magazine as a kid. We loved Don Martin's, you know, um, Hinged Feet, you know, um, <laughs> and all that real funny eye pop type stuff. God, the list goes on. But I've got to say, I reckon Carlos Esquera was probably the earliest. Him and Tony DiZaniga, for some reason, through the mists of time, and they still stand up that stuff. Cool. I, th- I think you raised an interesting point about the uh, black and white. I think I think a lot of free readers um, yeah. still struggle with colour with the Phantom. Um, yeah. Like I don't know if you probably realise, you probably know that through have uh, experimented a bit with uh, full colour issues, and there's still a lot of um, a lot of uh, diehard focus, as we tend to call them, uh, that still um, stick, try and stick true with the whole whole black and white. Yeah, I can understand that. I mean, it, you, you always love the stuff you see first, mm. at, whether it's at a certain age or a stage of, of what you're reading, what you're into, and, you know, people still, still love black and white movies for the same reason. You know, you can't really deny the appeal of black and white. And, of course, colour brings with it a lot of technical challenges, you know, as well. And, you know, and all the big companies have been through it. I mean, you know, D, you know DC have, have been through stages where they've changed their, you know, paper stock, say, for example, or their printing process. And there's always been a run of, you know, where there's always been a run of issues that have suffered from the technical process being ironed out and being improved, you know. But I don't think anyone would say today that they would rather DC Comics be black and white or Marvel would be black and white. So I think it's a worthy experiment and I think it's one that will bear fruit once once it gets on its feet, you know. It it has to happen. Mm. I mean, it's happened with with virtually every other comic in the world and to great success. So I, I... I totally understand what, why they're doing it. But I can also understand the fans' love of black and white. I mean, I, all those old war and horror comics, I mean, they were fantastic. And they were also a technical feat in themselves because doing good black and white isn't exactly easy to, to achieve, certainly on that cheap paper stock as well. You know, they had amazing production people behind those magazines 
and they're still gorgeous to look at, all those black and white Warren magazines, you know, like Creepy and Eerie. Mm. You could never imagine I've, them in colour, you know. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, no, I'm no artist or, or, or expert in that field, but I've kind of found that black and white, there's less, like, there's almost less room to make mistakes. Like, with colour, you can sometimes hide the, the poor um, artwork. Right. It's just, yeah, the one thing that I've kind of noticed that with black and white, it's almost harder to do a good black and white than it is with the colour. Yeah, most, most certainly. I, I, I tend to agree. But from a creator's point of view, what I find um, enjoyable about the colour process is it opens up more storytelling avenues in the sense, you know, you can use the colour as a storytelling tool um, yeah. A bit like, um, I mean, if you look at the Sin City stuff that Frank Miller did, where he'd just have one colour yellow through the whole thing or one colour red, you know, uh, a good that's a pretty good example of, of colour being used as a kind of an extra storytelling dimension, you know, mm. in the right creative hands, you know. But yeah, things can, I mean, colours, you know, it's tricky. If you don't get it right, it can muddy things up. Um, and things can, you know, clarity is, is an issue, you know. That's why the stuff that I'm colouring for the Gaslight uh, series has um, little in the way of gradations and lens flares and fancy computer effects. I'm trying to keep it as flat as I can, firstly, so it doesn't look computery, but secondly, so it's a bit kind, it maybe will be a bit kinder in the printing process and hopefully um, keeping the colour palette flat and simple will make things a bit easier at the printing stage and you know, hopefully it won't get you know, muddied up or anything like that. Well, I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought up Gaslight because we probably should move towards that story. Particularly. <laughs> uh, we know that uh, from, from Fru's Facebook uh, information that the Gaslight is going to first appear in issue 1785, which is going to be full colour and the supernova uh, special sort of thing with with um, variant covers and all of that. So is it your, is is Gaslight going to be in colour every time it comes out, I gather? I don't know. I don't know. When we um, were asked to do it initially, um, they were just talking about black and white mm. and then the uh, topic of colour has been introduced uh, <laughs> recently. And I think, I mean, I know they're doing stuff with that issue that you've talked about. Yeah, I think the idea is to sort of um, make a bit of a splash, a bit of a fanfare about it with colour. But whether that's the, the go all the way through, I don't know. But but what I will say, so it, it basically should most of the time be, it'll appear eight pages at, as, at a time in whatever phantom issues it appears in. Mm. When it sort of starts to go on a regular cycle, you'll see an eight-page chapter each time, and they've been that way. But they definitely wanted at the end that the whole thing would get collected in a full-colour, standalone trade paperback. So I guess the supernova thing must have moved them to, you know, uh, anticipate some of that by bringing the colour into play early, but whether they'll do that for the chapters after this, I'm not sure. Mm, okay. Okay. So, for those of us who have uh, are just fandom fans and have come in late to this whole Gaslight idea, 
Chris, maybe you'd be, be the best person to explain to us what is the Gaslight genre. Um, we've heard about um, you know one-shot comics like Batman by Gaslight in the past. Is it like that? Um, what what is Gaslight and what does it mean? And what does that mean for the Phantom as a character in particular? Okay, look, whatever it was, Glenn Ford, the uh, one of the company directors, and Dudley Hogarth, um, the um, publisher, asked me to come and see them. And they knew I was out there and around there, just like um, they both knew me already. And they asked me to come and see them and said that they wanted to talk to me about writing something for them. And basically they slid across the page and I slid across the table a one-pager and they said, we want you to do this. And the title at the top of the thing was Phantom by Gaslight. And they said, we're looking for something that's creepy, that's gothic, that you know, involves Victorian-era London and have the phantom running around there, and they mentioned, uh, rattled off a list of you know, potential guest star characters that could make appearances and cameos and things like that, and said, what can you do with that? And I basically said, well, you know, I, I, I couldn't have asked for a gig that was more made to order for what my interests <laughs> are, what my yeah. loves are. So I said, I'd love to have a stab at it, fellas. You know, if I can, I'll have a run at it. So I had a run at it. I wrote them up a... Um, I can't remember, it might have been about a four or five or six page proposal of, the, of how it would, uh, the overarching sort of things that would go. They sent it off to um, uh, King Features Hearst or whatever they're called these days who uh, own the character, the, who they get the permissions from. They came back and said, it's been approved and uh, start doing it. So basically the structure that they asked me to do was 16 eight-page chapters, whatever, whatever that equals. And, uh, so there's 16 parts. Yeah, 16 parts, eight-page chapters each. So I'm treating each four chapters. I'm doing just traditional dramatic structure, three-act structure. So first four chapters is Act 1, next four chapters is Act 2A, then, act, then the culmination point, then Act 2B, and then the, the Act 3, the big climactic act will be the last four chapters. Uh, but we, we did get asked for this supernova stuff. Jason and I got asked, could we do something special that would fit into all that? So we're doing, we did a six-page issue zero, oh, okay, ooh. which is, that's, that was done, uh, the publisher and Supernovas conferred and asked us to do that. So we, I, I handed in about what chapters one to three, and I just handed in four on Friday, and, um, but they asked us to stop, and uh, can you just do a, uh, something to sort of lead in for a six-page. I don't know. I think it's being published in like a Supernova show bag or in the program or something like that, or maybe in the comic itself on the table that, that's going to be there. Yeah, that will become obvious at Supernova in Sydney in, in June. Um, so we, we circled back and we did that very fast. Oh, that's... Very fast. It was like, oh, we're going to need this like now. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, th I think it's great. Um, I think it's great like that, that Supernova themselves are getting on board with it as well. And it's a great, uh, it will be, you know, if it is in the program, if it is like the program, it will be also great for uh, the Phantom and Fru as well. So um, that, that's, that's awesome to hear. Yeah. All right. And I, was, I just, I suppose to talk about the story itself, I don't want to give <laughs> too much away, but look, basically the way I've approached it is, um, I am trying to tell a story that is makes use of all those gothic trappings and the gothic atmosphere and uh, all those classic sort of potential 
either real life characters or fictional characters that might be wandering around. I mean, well, you could say, oh, it's a la the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, but I actually, my inspiration predates the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen by decades and decades. In the Sherlock Holmes world that I'm a huge fan of, since the 1930s and even before, people have been writing spin-off novels and pastiche novels and short stories. Imagining what if Sherlock Holmes or Moriarty or Watson encountered the Invisible Man or Dracula or Winston Churchill when he was a kid and all that kind of stuff. So it's actually got nothing to do with mm-hmm. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, more to do with that. Okay. So I'm going that route and I am trying to do that. I'm trying to weave that into something historically accurate and I'm trying to weave that into being as authentic as I can with the Phantom lore, so the Phantom for that period, and if you, your Phantom fans will already know, there's um, the, the, the male Phantom and his twin sister have both had the costume in the Victorian times. They were born in 1852, so our story opens in 1888, um, so they're around 30-whatever, 35, 36 or whatever, so it's a... Uh, yeah, it's faithful to those established bits of law, but all the gaps and bits and pieces I'm making use of to throw fresh story elements or speculate what might have happened here and what might have happened there and throw a whole bunch of other questions and mysteries and things at it to sort of go, well, here's a whole bunch of stuff you don't know about these two phantoms sure. and their setup, their situation mm. and their family dynamics and all the rest of it and what happens when... You know, you you really start to pick at the whole threads of the Phantom mythos in, in a story in that time, you know. So, uh, it's a it's I'm I'm biting off mm. a lot. I'm biting off more than I can chew. That's not up to me to decide. That's up to readers to decide. But I'm I'm certainly not um, being slack about trying to achieve a lot and still just tell an emotionally good story. Wow. So do you think like the obviously you had a lot of experience in this genre? What do you think? makes what do you think about the fandom that makes it work in this genre well one of the fantastic things about the phantom which is also shared by non-powered heroes like sherlock holmes batman you know your daredevils although he's got the, the eyesight thing with captain america all those kind of guys is it's not so hard to make them sweat and put them in really sticky situations Whereas if you've got a Superman or a Hulk or a Spider-Man, you know, it's a bit trickier because you've got to throw some real um, significant stuff for them to be, be in a jam. So I guess that's the thing. Mm. So you get to see them really in danger a lot more often and they've got to really use that combination of uh, st- strength. But they've got to use, you know, training and skills and wits just as much to stay alive. So that's, that's kind of cool. And that makes them more relatable. And you put them in an interesting era like um, the Victorian era, and we're not preaching, but yeah, we are making nods here and there to some social and other issues. I mean, we always love the glamour of the Victorian age, but most of the people are bloody poor and miserable. So yeah, we're chucking a reference in here and there, and what better way than with a non-superpowered hero who you know who feels all those human things, those human frailty, than the Phantom. Definitely. So what about yourself, Jason? Do you what what do you think about the fan and that makes him a character that works well in this era? 
Oh, well, to me, I, I see him as a, a very, you know, classic, you know, iron-jawed, two-fisted hero in the, in the classic mould. You know, I, I get Chris mentioned the lack of superpowers, and that's kind of a gift for me as an artist because I get to do a lot of action poses. It's something I've always enjoyed about, even though I'm not, I'm not really a huge fan of superhero comics, I do enjoy the the um, challenge of, you know, a moving figure in space. In, in space, I mean in, you know, in um, in a three-dimensional space, not mm. in space space. Yeah, yeah. But um, <laughs> just, I enjoy doing, you know, action poses and action um, scripts, fast-paced, lots of cool fight scenes, rooftops. Um, Phantom just, just, just fits that like a glove. You know, it's just that whole classic aspect which you know chris is delivering up um scene after scene of of high-paced adventure it's a gift for me uh, I, I i like that style i like working in that kind of style um nothing against superhero type heroes but there's something about that whole reality gritty reality thing that that appeals to me mm. Mm. and so for both of you guys um you've done a lot of work in other in other genres and casually, uh, I guess, with The Phantom. What Have you had to do a lot of reading or, or catching up on uh, stories from that particular generation of Phantom to, to put yourself in that world um, and, and understand who they are and stick close to the Phantom lore that you were talking about before? Look, luckily, the, um, the, 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 the back catalogue of... I know I'm going to get it wrong. Uh, the 17th and 16th um, Phantoms... Is not huge, and I've got most of it, and the rest is you can reference easily on the web. Julie, the female phantom, there's only a handful of stories of her, uh, including even ones, modern ones done by Moonstone and publishers like that. There's not a lot of stuff to, to research, so that makes it fairly straightforward, and, and the internet sort of solves the rest. So um, that's what I meant before about dancing in between the gaps in the, yeah. the stuff. You know? mm. I mean, there's a bit of stuff about Julie. There's a bit of stuff about her marrying this guy. There's references to him dying and blah, blah, blah. And I wasn't completely satisfied with all of that, so I've already started playing around with that because, you know, <laughs> how did she feel? How did she really feel about him dying? You know, and stuff mm. like that. I'm not going to get into that, but um, we do show that there's a particular effect that the loss of someone close to her appears to have had on her. And, um, you know, so there's enough there to really dig in and enjoy and just, again, the, the trick I'm trying to do is just weave it in so it all becomes part of a seamless thing of, you know, here's a bunch of characters and they've got rich histories behind them. And you can just basically then throw a brand new, well, for them, in, in 1888, this is a brand new, fresh, you know, terror menace opposition they've got to deal with. And yet, you know, like any of us in life, you throw a problem at you, you're throwing it at the man or woman and their personal backlog of experience they bring to, to fight it or deal with it or just mentally cope with it. Mm. Mm. So, and what about yourself, Jason? I guess we're talking, I guess, about the costume design and that sort of thing. Um, we we are lucky enough that we've had a look at a, a preview of um, Chapter 1, A Study in Violet. The costume design of the fan was probably a little bit different from uh, what we would have seen, certainly from Wilson McCoy and Ray Moore and Cy Barry. 
it seems to be more authentic to what an actual Phantom costume might have looked like in the 1800s or 1880s. Is that fair to say? Oh, thank God you said that, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, one thing I was wary of was um, that in those times, or you you wouldn't expect in those times that people would have the kind of tight-fitting lycra that yeah. you see in the movies now. Though having said that, in, in the superhero movies now, everything is looking a bit steampunky. It's all chunky and the seams are really fat and, yeah. you know, it's sort of looking like leather armour almost. So my idea was that while you can't, you know, you can't cover him in, you know, metal pipes and things. He's the Phantom. He's still got to have the purple duds and, you know, the stripy pants and whatnot. But I thought, well, uh, how, how can I make that look like it was made by a, some kind of um, Navy seamstress or something back in, in, the, in the Victorian era? So chunky seams, lots of seams and bits of sewing here and there. But at the same time, not messing with the classic formula because he's still got to look like the Phantom mm. when he's running down the main street. Mm. Um, and you don't want to freak the diehard fans out. Um, yeah. So I, I hope I haven't done that. <laughs> I hope I haven't done that. <laughs> Sorry if I did. I mean, if you saw some of the other sketches, you probably might be horrified because <laughs> uh, in the flush of excitement, when I first heard about the job, I quickly rushed to the drawing board and knocked up a number of very steampunky looking designs, you know, with goggles and all this kind of stuff. And then once I settled down, I had a, a bunch of cool sketches, but it wasn't what the brief was, which is to draw a phantom. So um, <laughs> I hope I haven't gone too too far overboard. I did give him the odd um, belt pouch here and there, I think. The problem is I keep forgetting and I, I keep, you know, leaving bits out. <laughs> so... Um, I hope I'm not messing up and changing it every time I draw it. I've got a, I've got my sketch in front of me at all times, so I don't forget, yeah. you know, where the seams are. But the, an eagle-eyed phantom reader might spot the odd <laughs> seam that moves here and there from the top of his head to the back. I don't know. Hope not. I hope not. <laughs> Feel free to call it out. You'll get a no prize. You know. <laughs> <laughs> there are some very pedantic readers who I'm sure will notice. So in, in... God bless them. <laughs> In terms of the design that you settled on, Jason, was that something that you came to yourself, or was that given? Was there some guidance from Glenn Ford and the Fru Crew there? No, that's the beauty of this job is that I've been given free reign. Right. Um, and if any, and if anything, I'm trying not to abuse that privilege, you know, and and be respectful to the material and not ego trip all over it and. And you know, and show off what what a what a ridiculous costume I can you know make. <laughs> oh, I'll give him wings today. See how that goes down. <laughs> that would not go down well. <laughs> Shut the six. I <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, look, I'm looking forward to being bailed up by Phantom fans and and grilled about this stuff. It's good fun. <laughs> the thing about it is, though, basically, if people sort of do bail us up about this one. We can look him straight in the eye and go, it's not a mistake, we're doing it like this on purpose because he's not getting his, the clothes, as Jason said, the clothing's not coming from a 21st sex century textile mill. It's, you know, it's coming from a Victorian mm. sewing machine and whatnot. It's, it's you know, and, and you know, models of clothing and stitching, etc. 
that are available to them then. We're, we're just trying to show that a little bit more, that that's, they would have that look to them if you looked at them more closely sometimes. Yeah. yeah, if anything, you're being probably more real to the error than what uh, previous fandom stories have been. Yeah, that's probably you have um, We're trying to anyway, yeah. Yeah, because as, as you probably are aware, or you will be aware very soon, um, <laughs> there are a lot of... A lot of traditionalists and focus out there. Um, um, it's kind of like the, 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 the terms that we've dubbed them on the podcast and social media. And that. They're, they're the diehard ones that have been following it since the 40s and the 50s. And and I think um, I think uh, the creators of Kid Fandom have found this out for themselves with uh, with their new with their release recently. But it's it's um. I think, like, even even though, like, because I will admit, like, when I read it, the costume was the first thing that grabbed my attention was that, oh, it's different. But it's, it, it is different, but, you know, it's still very, um, it's still true in the sense that it's got the dubs, it's got the belt, it's got the boots, it's got the mask, it's got the same style cow obviously with the seams and stuff like that. And then when he's walking in London, he's got the trench coat, he's got the hat. So you've, you, you still stick with the, um, with the uh, traditional elements in that sense that, I guess, that are the Phantom. Well, he's a recognisable Phantom. Yeah, exactly. You're going to be able to see him and you'll be able to go, oh, yeah, that's the Phantom. It's not like you're going to be able to look at it and go... Is that the Phantom or is that Batman or, yep, yep. or you know, or someone that's, else? That's coming across. That's what we're going for. Because, yeah, you, yeah. There's, a point, there's a point there where you have to, you can't depart too much from the template. You, 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 there's something, mm. you, you've got to at least get the, um, the essence of the character. It's got to stay on the page. Yeah. Now, in looking at, the, in rereading it tonight, when I first read it, I got confused with the first page, and this is kind of like a, a, a throwback to when uh, the 17th Kit and and Julie were kids. And I don't want to give it away for people so who haven't guys, read it yet. Just to be clear, so you guys have seen Chapter 1, eight pages? Yes. Uh, yeah, right. just the first eight pages, yeah. Right, gotcha. So, yeah, just the first eight pages. So it was a bit of a preview. So I, I must admit... I don't, I don't believe that, you know, it was an accident or something. But, like, the first page, in this, it didn't really make much sense with the rest of the seven pages. But and I'm assuming that the first page has got something very, very important with the overall kind of arc of the story. Would I be right in saying that? I think you're a very intelligent man, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't hear that very often, Chris. <laughs> Because it got, it got me, and I must admit, like, I had to read it, and I was like, it's probably the, the one thing, probably even more than the um, uh, than the costume, is what has the first page got to do with the rest of the story? Isn't there a caption or two of dialogue on the very beginning of page two that sort of links page two to page one? I think on the, on the not really. We might have an older version, but it um yeah it it, it it's just tonight and then listening to you guys talking and all that it kind of makes me think that there's that there's a that's kind of 
once we've read a couple of parts, all these threads will start to weave together. And, and, um, and it kind of follows on with the fact that it's a, the thing that gets me with the common comic that we kind of get in, in the everyday through is that it's a lot more adult. Like, there's a lot more going on. There's, it's a lot more grittier. It's grimier. There's a lot more to read. There's, like, little clues in... In, in like the panels, in the way the story's set up and, and stuff like that. So I think it's going to be um, something that we're going to have to continue to reread, and then you're probably going to slip little things in, which is going to make us like, go, oh, that's why you did it like that. Oh, that's why you did it like that. Would I be right in saying that? Uh, look, absolutely everything has been fairly sort of detailed, worked out in my head. Uh, and yeah, that first that first page is there, not just. For nothing, that first page is there as you as you worked out for very significant reasons, um, and there are some things going on that first page that have uh, almost cataclysmic ramifications by the end of the story. But it's also like mm. chronological. That first page takes place. It, it has to come before what comes next because it's that same character. It's that character. Obviously, it's that character, Kit Walker, as a child, and then. Many years later, that same character as an adult. Mm. So, you know, it makes sense mm. that it's logical. And, uh, yeah, but that will be important. And then even well, then, even by page eight of that instalment you've got, of course, you see the introduction of the other character from that first page, don't yes. you? See yes. Great, yeah. yeah. So, you know, we, we uh, yeah, it's all sort of meant to sort of make a logical kind of sense, yeah. Mm. Now, as you as you probably know, um, the Fru did a um, a Julie Walker Girl Phantom annual special, so I'm assuming that wasn't by accident. And again, it's seeing earlier on you were talking about how you were planning on filling in the gaps. So I'm assuming that that annual is going to be almost worth keeping a hold of and keeping a reading copy as we kind of. Well, do you get wanna, the I'll gaps think, filled out. Do you want to know the truth? Truth is, oh, it was, it was truth all is, accident. I, I wrote my outline, first chapter, might have been second chapter, without reading the Girl Phantom special. I had some previous <laughs> knowledge. Of, I had some previous knowledge of her from uh, one or two stories. I think I must have read when I was a kid. I think I saw the Moonstone story that they reprinted in the Girl Phantom yep. special. I think I saw it from Moonstone, but. Didn't leave a huge impression. So we'd already decided to make firm use of her before they brought that out. So whether our decision to use her was what part of what triggered them to collect all those stories in between one set of covers, I actually don't know or not. It might have just been a happy accident. I was giving you guys credit for it as well. No, no, it actually was completely independent. And as I said, the <laughs> trigger was Glenn and Dubby's instruction to me, set it in Victorian England, and they're the two phantoms for Victorian England. Yeah. 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 And, and you're True. right in what you said before about there not being a huge back catalogue. Like, no no, Lee for, no Lee Fork fan can be upset with what you're doing with Julie because Lee Fork only used her himself, I think, the once. So, um, mm. you know, like you said, plenty of gaps to fill in. Yeah. So what? So what has been your your favourite part of creating the series so far? I've been talking for a bit. Jace, you go first. 
Oh, well, I guess, you know, the fact that I'm playing with a a classic character at last, you know, I mean, every indie and self-published guy, well, I'm speaking for myself, I've, I've enjoyed creating my own characters, but secretly always wanting to have a crack at, you know, a legendary character like the Phantom, mm. you know, um, I'd also love to have a go at drawing Batman, you know, um, because it's something that people know and without sounding shallow, hopefully, if I do happen to mention uh, what I'm working on, if you mention something like the Phantom, everyone's heard of the Phantom, you know, you know, everyone has a, you know, a comment to say, oh, my dad loves the Phantom or, you know, everyone knows it. So that that's a real thrill to be working on something that, you know, isn't obscure and hard to explain. Yeah. <laughs> and just getting to play in that kind of sandbox with, you know, with that big granite jaw and that hook nose, it's it's great fun. It's great fun playing with those shapes. Cool. And and yourself, Chris, is it is it the opportunity to um to to work more with your, you know, your passion of the Victorian era? Yeah, look, it's that, but it's everything Jason just said. You know, you basically got, you know, one of the the great granddaddies of superhero comics, you know, um, 1936, I think. There's very little um, that predates the Lee Fork Phantom in, t in terms of superhero models, you know. There's, you know, in modern literature, you've got the Greek gods and all that stuff, but apart from that, there's maybe... Um, uh, what's his name? Philip Wiley's Gladi Gladiator novel about the, the 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 you know the 1925 superhero or whatever. Mm. Uh, it's not much else. Mm. And he wasn't costume, but he was super. But uh, the Phantoms, I think, they often attributed as the first costume comics hero. Yeah. Um, so that's you know that's got decades and decades of tradition and history attached to that. And uh, it's great to be playing with that and injecting that in the Gothic era where there's all these other wonderful characters. And because it's old enough copyright reasons, um, we're allowed to use other, other characters. Otherwise, if we were doing... And we're, we've, we've crammed this full. Like, as I said, those Sherlock Holmes novels that were my inspiration for this, you know, predating League of Extraordinary Gen Things like Nicholas Myers' A 7% Solution, where Sherlock Holmes meets Sigmund Freud. That's where I'm coming yeah. from on this stuff. You know, there's, there's these amazing historical characters and then there's these villains as well. And you just play, you mix them all together. And if we were trying to do this with a, with a 1950s bunch of characters, you couldn't do it because you have to pay a fortune in life. <laughs> you just couldn't do it. Yeah. So, but, so this is like uh, an absolute... Jason said sandbox before. Mm -hmm. This is a literary but action hero sandbox. It's just amazing. Hmm. That, that sounds very exciting. I can't wait to uh, see some of the, the future chapters with uh, the sounds of that. Yeah, it's um, it's uh, the perfect thing for me to 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 work on following the Eek stuff because I immersed myself in in all the classic black and white, you know, artists uh, that I loved as a kid, and so I was still I still had all, I've still got all that in me. It hasn't been long ago since I stopped doing Eek and I had more left in me. I would have liked to do more, but it just wasn't wasn't possible, it just wasn't happening. 
Um, so that all wasn't a kind of a waste because I'd felt I'd gone down a really rich path visually with all that black and white mystery stuff and horror stuff and being able to sort of use those sort of muscles again that I'd built up from doing so many eat pages was uh, it was like it was just like coming home it just felt good it, it felt like um you being able to flex those muscles again visually yeah it was was it's satisfying you know like it wasn't it feels like it wasn't all a waste you know mm. so a question for you jason like well, obviously um uh, the Victorian era is something we don't live in, and um, we none of us were alive back then. So, what do you use for um, like uh, like reference materials and trying to stay true to like the clothing and the weapons and the um, landscape and stuff like that? Well, Ironfest was on in Lithgow recently, just down the mountain, so that always provides a visual feast of uh, ideas. Uh, but look, I've got to you know take my hat off to google here um <laughs> i don't have a big library of you know victoriana um i'm familiar with the look and there's enough room in it to to put your own little spin on things but you know that whole uh cyber uh sorry steampunk thing that that's relatively new for me because when I was a kid, no one was doing that stuff. And and the Batman by Gaslight comic, um, I'd st I'd been reading comics for years when that came out. Um, but of course, I looked that up as well. And uh, you know, it's really, it's really just applying um, those kind of cliches in a, in a sort of a non-obvious sort of way. It's not. It's not very techy. I mean, Chris isn't doing a very techy kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Really, it's just the mood and the atmosphere that we're that we're using. He's not. He's not got the phantom. Well, as far as I know, he he, he doesn't have the phantom <laughs> coming up against a giant steam-powered robot, for example. So we're, we're not eight. talking about chapter eight. Not yet. Sorry, mate. That's the next <laughs> issue, isn't it? Sorry about that. Um, uh, you know, so it's it's really just that whole horror mood and the whole look. It, it's not really about the costumes, though. I did do a couple of pretty good cyber. Uh, sorry, I keep saying cyberpunk, steampunky looking sketches, but it just wouldn't have fitted, you know, because it's got to be about mm. the phantom. It's got to be about the face yeah. and the fist, you know. Yeah. Not um not all the gear. Yeah. Um, when you talk about that, it reminds me of the uh, the Will Smith movie, the uh, was it the Wild Wild West? Oh yeah. Yeah, that, that that's pretty much as over the top as you could probably get, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, um, people have done that a lot in comics. I, I'm aware of it. I couldn't name you any, but it, it has become a bit of a cliche. You know, it's not a bad one. Mm. Fun to draw if you like drawing all that sort of gear. But the gaslight stuff is more about the mood and the, the physicality of it all. You know. Mm. I think that's that's probably something that a lot of uh, the traditionalist fans will will be happy to hear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's not he's not flying around in a steam powered Batmobile, you know. Yeah, good. <laughs> or breaking out in a Wild Wild West style uh, song halfway through the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you guys can give us a bit of a peek behind the curtains in terms of um, the process. Like you, you guys are obviously um, collaborating on this together. What sort of process do you do you follow there? Is it a lot of um, phone conversations, or can you get together from time to time? Is it 
all internet, how far ahead of the scripts, all that sort of stuff. Um, can you give us any? Um, yeah, I mean, look, I tend to, with this, I tend to work the way I work with all my assignments, whether it was, you know, this or Black House Comics or Marvel, DC, um, Dynamite or whatever. I do a full script, okay? And the exception to that was when when they said, oh, we need that that Chapter Zero ASAP. Yep. I knew if I'd stopped to try and think about the full script, we wouldn't be able to make that tight deadline. So I did that one Marvel style, and Jace did the artwork for that one. Came <laughs> back and scripted over the top of that. Okay, and that was tougher, and it broke the rhythm a bit. But right. you know, you got to you got to do sometimes. Um, yeah. But I prefer to do full script. Um, you know, panel description, dialogue there on the page, because it's just better, and also it means that the artist doesn't have to go. Okay, if it says Phantom close up, he's angry, right? It's different. It's it's not as good as saying Phantom close up angry. Then you actually see the specific thing he's saying to the person, so you can get a sense of the nuances of his face or his gestures or whatever that he might be making, talking to the other person rather than a, you know, by what he's saying, you can work out. You know, is he like hysterically angry, screaming, or is he like stern angry because he's getting quite a measured lecture. It's not really fair to the artist to do that too often. So I do prefer mm. full, I do prefer full script. Jason, do you prefer full scripts or are you more of a Marvel man with the half a page and do the rest yourself? Oh look, it's it's horses for courses to <laughs> coin a phrase. My job really is to make sure that every line I put counts in the in the furthering of the reader's understanding of the story. You mentioned before you read the, the first page of the first chapter and you were confused and that kind of, I felt a cold dagger in my heart <laughs> because my, my job is to make it not confusing. So, um, I've, I've, Sorry I've about really, that. that's, no, no, I, I really, I really try to not show off, you know, uh, I don't have a lot of room to show off because there's only six pages and if if you want to and you know we're doing something pretty ambitious so we, we want to put a lot in there but not at the expense mm. of you know confusing the reader um so i really just try and um chop chop out a rough page in the shape i think it should be uh and then it's just a constant process of revision where we all look over it again and again in its detail and entirety what's important in this story what's got to come across more than something else and then if it needs to be massaged here and there um, visually you know then it, it's all a process of, of trying to illuminate the thing so people aren't going to get lost because it's a bit hard to, to to pick up a story thread as a reader and follow it, particularly when you're only getting six page, mm. six pages thrown at you at a time, mm. you may miss certain issues. Um, how do you pick the thread back up? We don't really have the space to do a, to, to waste a whole page on, you know, what for those who yeah. came in late. Yeah. You know, we don't really we have much <laughs> space to do that. So it's a challenge, um, but it's a really good one. It, it keeps you keeps you your uh, sequential. I, you know, in, it certainly keeps you on your toes. You don't have a lot of time to just, 
you know, spend a whole page on someone's face or something like that. You know, you've really got to make every every panel count. You know, mm. uh, it's it's good. It's it's good challenge. You know, mm. keeps you fit. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you mm. guys have probably alluded to this a little bit already, but um, in terms of the working relationship with Fru, how's that been? Oh, they're wonderful. They are a really, you know, um, uh, supportive, um, trusting people for people who, you know, and, and they're fairly new, the the, the, the blokes there, uh, Glenn and the other director who I, um, I haven't dealt with as yet. Uh, and Dudley was, I think he was the editor before and he, he got elevated to publisher when, when the new owners came in. They're all, uh, you know, very decent chaps. So, you know, no complaints on my part. Yeah, I um, I had a previous rapport with Glenn Ford, you know, through the, the comic scene, I guess, um, him as a comic shop owner and, and me as a publisher. So we kind of had already struck up a, a rapport there, which um, continues through to, to what we're doing now, which, um, which has been really useful. Uh, you know, we've sort of hit the ground running. We, we haven't had to sort of get to know each other at all. He... He's known my work for years. He's supported it. I've always found him to be a really, really straight-up guy, super polite, really fair, and it's, it's just like working, I don't know, with a fan or, or something. Um, mm. You don't feel like you have to explain everything that you do. There's just that, a feeling of trust, you know, which, you know, thank God. The job's hard <laughs> enough as it is, you know. <laughs> That's it, especially when I deal with the fans as well. Have an um, that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was um I was just like I remember uh, Jason you were saying that you do storyboards is that was that correct I think you said yes for ads, yeah. yeah yeah I've um I I did I did a multimedia course back at uni which had you know a lot of graphic design elements and all that and um one of our classes was like storyboards and all that and. I've just, uh, like, page seven, that whole sequence, that flows so well. It's like, it, it, um, and then with the, the big, the big last full page, um, on page eight, it's, it's, it's a great way of ending the, um, uh, that part. Great. Thanks. I didn't want to do it like that. I said to Chris, I didn't want to, I, I didn't think it was a good idea to, to, to drop that at the end, but, it's part of a of a vision that he's got for the the look of the book and the way it flows. And you know, I've got to say, you know, uh, you know, if I'm using a, a whole page on a close up, I'm just going to go for uh, on a you know like a full body shot. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to enjoy yeah. it and put heaps of detail in and just draw the shit out of it. You know, <laughs> so that's well, my that's my yeah, moment yeah. to shine, and that's what I tried to do. Cool, and and you and you absolutely smashed it, mate. Um, can I ask you, Jermaine? And, and you, Dan, did you feel as though your, your eight-page chapter, because it's, this is one of the, the real sticky, scary challenges about writing anything in chapters, especially what that are going to be published separately, possibly yeah. week or, or weeks mm. apart, did you feel like you had a decent little read in eight chapters that something sort of happened? It was, it was a very... Challenge. I felt full after reading it. 
Uh, that's probably the, I'm a bit of a foodie, so it's probably the best way to describe it. Is that I felt you know it wasn't like you know you know you get a lot of American stuff and it's like you know it may be 20 pages, but half of it's filled with ads and it's kind of like you read it and it's just like well that was a waste of time. Um, yeah, and um, we've experienced a couple of fandom stories from uh, some of the American publishers like that, but with this one, it is like it's it's full. There's a lot going on, like, with the, you know, I can tell there's a lot of care with the drawings, with the script, uh, even, like, with the backgrounds. Like, you get a lot of artists, when they get lazy, they kind of um, uh, do no backgrounds. But Big this nuts. is... You, you, you absolutely hit it. I, I, I'm, look, I mean, I'm really lucky. I'm going to piss in Jason's pocket here. I'm really lucky. <laughs> Jason is one of those guys who can nail the storytelling so you know exactly what is going on. Mm. He can keep the drama. He can do atmosphere at the bejesus. Okay. But he can also do a fair bit of content in a page and it doesn't look squashed and it doesn't look cramped. Yes. And he's not lazy and, yeah. All the comic book artists, in the, I'm going to sound like an old bastard, okay? All the comic book artists in the, the days when it, it meant their jobs, in the 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s and even the 70s, who knew how to do all this stuff properly, could do all this stuff. And then you had a short, bad run in the 80s and 90s of the bad boy glamour artists who just wanted to do, you know, God bless him, but Rob Liefeldy and, you know, full-page, double-page shots, with just one or two figures on the page and no other detail, and there's no storytelling. You know, you're being robbed of a story. You're feeling like, you know, you're being to a bloody meat pie and half the bloody thing's empty. And, um, yeah, exactly. You know, the challenge, we've really got this, this challenge of we're only going to get eight pages a time, and if we can't do something at least quasi-memorable in eight pages... You know, my thing was, well, I shouldn't even be trying because it's not yep. fair. It's not fair to open up and even read a serial and not feel like you got something out of it. So, yeah, I'm trying to do that with the writing, whether I'm achieving or not. But, you know, let, let the fans decide. But Jason has those skills. I know, I'm not trying to insult you, Jason, by saying old world skills, old, old school skills, but they're actually, you know, unfortunately they're not, everywhere in the industry like they used to be years ago. There's, there's still quite a few guys getting big money for cheating and not delivering story. Exactly. It reminds me of, um, you remember, uh, I don't fan and fans have probably seen the 1943 uh, serial, which is the 15 chapters, um, and, the, and like at the end of each, I think they only went for like 15 minutes each. Yeah, Tom Tyler. Like every 15, I think they go for about 15 minutes each. And at the end of each part, there's like a cliffhanger. There's that excitement part that wants you to be able to have more the next part. And I think page seven and eight is a is a good start after reading one. Want uh, makes you want to hurry up and get to part two. I'm good because we're going to be trying to do appropriate dramatic variations on that. Throughout, we're always going to go. Okay, by the time we get to page eight, we need to leave something lingering in the in the, the mm. memory of the readers 
so that when, you know, two or four weeks later rolls around, they get the next one. Even if they don't remember exactly, there's enough of a, you know, a mental thing in there for the, a jog so that they'll it'll come back to them. And that was probably going to be my comment uh, in the answer to your question earlier, Chris, is that I understand what Jermaine was saying about being very full because there's a lot intellectually, I think, to take in in terms of the basis of the story. And I'm not going to give any of the, the plot details away, but the mystery that they start to uh, explore, um, or almost two mysteries, and you, you know that they're probably going to come together or whatever. But, uh, yes, then, that, then that, um, that cliffhanger moment at the end, which I guess is not... Um, you know, no one's hanging over the end of a cliff or falling out of a plane, but it is a really exciting moment. And you go, oh, what's next? And uh, looking oh, forward oh, to thanks. that. So, Look, yeah. Yeah, yeah, from the bottom of my heart, thanks thanks to both of you if, if it had that positive effect, you know, whether the rest of fandom, fandom agrees. But we really did want to yeah, give people a positive emotional jolt. Mm. Yeah, no, and there was, there was a, a, a real sense of... Um, yeah, and we've probably spoiled that maybe for some people if they listen to the podcast yeah, yeah, beforehand. Yeah. So but, far, you haven't said yet what it is, so that's good. Yeah, good, good. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a really, it was a really pleasing moment to go. Oh wow, that's that's going to be in the story. So, yeah, that was really good. Now, can I tease one thing? I'm not going to give it away, but I'm going to tease one thing about this story. Can do whatever Please you want. Do, yeah. <laughs> All right. So we've already said it's a big story. 16 chapters, blah, blah, blah. Okay, we're going to really try and do some stuff that's going to shake everything up, but still maintain, we're not going to do a single thing that is going to invalidate a single line of Lee Fork scripted fandom history. It might throw up some alternative ideas about who did what, where, when, and to whom, and when, and how. Okay, but we're not going to invalidate a thing. Mm. But one thing we are going to do by the time the story hits chapter four, people are going to discover that, and this was just my idea for through, that there is a significant Australian element in the story. Oh, about time. Excellent. A significant, Excellent. Uh, as in a major character in this storyline, Okay, is not only of Australian vintage, but is a major, significant lead character, for want of a better word, or lead figure in an aspect of very long established Australiana. Wow, okay. Actually, there's two of them. I've, I've got a couple of ideas. I might ask you after we've finished um, the recording so I don't give anything away. <laughs> and Jason's done a design for this character that is typical flippin' Paulos genius. <laughs> Sounds brilliant. It'll be good to get... Um, I think the, the thing that excites me the most about having you guys, having... Um, uh, and then also the creative team of uh, Kid Phantom and all that, is having some uh, Australian creators doing Phantom stuff. Yeah, 100%. Because it's the Phantom, as, as you've said and we've said previously on many podcasts, it is, we know it's an American creation, but it's such an Australian iconic character that it's good to see, like we've only had four creative stories prior 
uh, five if you include the um, uh, Marvel one with uh, Glenn and uh, David, which we talked about previously. So there hasn't really been a huge Australian influence on the Phantom apart from it actually publishing it. So to be able to hear that and then also having you guys who are, you know, fair dinkum Aussie, uh, putting their imprint on this almost Australian character, it, it is very exciting to hear. Oh, thank you. Well, look, we, I sort of thought it was too big a chance, especially, you know, 16 chapters. And I yeah. really had a thinking thought, can we do something appropriate? See, I sort of see the Phantom as a son of the planet, son of the, the whole global community. Mm. You know, yeah. European ethnicity, African upbringing, travels the globe. This story puts him in Victorian London, which is like with its seaports and everything else, it's the absolute centre of the universe in 1888. He's absolutely a, ch a child of the, the planet. He really belongs to no no culture at all, but he belongs to all of them. So, yeah, it's it's kind of cool. So, yeah, if we get to put a little bit of a leaning into an Aussie element or two, as well as some of these other ones, why not? With the fandom, it's totally appropriate because he doesn't belong to any one culture, any one language, any one creed. Totally agree. So just to, I guess, um, start to wrap the conversation up, obviously, just to talk a little bit about the way that Fru is launching Phantom by Gaslight, obviously there's a bit of excitement around the fact that they've timed, we've already mentioned, timed it for the full colour Supernova issue. There is going to be a variant cover, which we've talked about on the on the Chronicle Chamber website already. Um, we know that Fru is planning of the, one of their Fru Folio series, which is the, the extra artwork and that sort of thing for the jam cover. You guys must be excited to have something that Fru is so putting so much effort behind. Oh, it's a great it's a great privilege to be supported in that way. Yeah, certainly. Mm. It certainly is a privilege. That's the word I wanted to use. So are you will you guys be at uh, Sydney Supernova this year? Yeah, yeah, that's that's the plan as far as I, I, I um, understand it. And look, you know, Jason and I used to both work for Black House Comics. Jason was yep. doing Eek and I was doing Sherlock Holmes Dark Detective. So, you know, we've done the elbow to elbow signing away kind of thing and they're always fun, you know, the people you meet, uh, you know. It's it's such a, you know, a, 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 a grace and a courtesy with someone to be nice enough to come up with you and want your bloody scribble on a comic, you know. <laughs> um, it really is a, a really nice thing. And, you, and look, you know, it's frightening too because you hope they're not going to take it home and hate it, especially the fans <laughs> which they'll have preconceived, you know, tastes and ideas about it. And hopefully we won't have upset the apple cart too much. But uh, you know, those events where you actually get to meet the customers are, are, are lovely things. Mm, definitely. Yeah, and, I, and I'm hoping that people aren't going to support it just because we're Aussies, as, as much as that is a big thing for me. Um, but yeah, I'm hoping that people can enjoy it on, you know, on its own merits and sort of get what we're trying to do. But definitely appreciate the support. And you'll be in Supernova too, Jason? Yeah, yeah, there'll be elbow to elbow and elbow bending, no doubt. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> well, I, I've seen, I'm going a story out of school about you, Jason. I've seen um, Jason sit next to other artists doing signings at conventions Mates of mine like Jan Scherpenhausen or Phil Cornell or things like that, and 
you know, after it's all over and you've gone home, Jason, they always go, bloody hell, that guy is just... How does God, he He's a machine. The stuff just comes out of his pencil. He does sketches or commissions, you know, and they say, how does he draw so quickly and so good? Out of fear. <laughs> so, fear you know, of being unemployed. Yeah, no, but just, uh, fear of being sprung. It's like lightning, you know? So, um, Jeez, I... you, you, whatever you, even if you're terrified, mate, you make it look effortless. I will draw my ass off. <laughs> so that's always great, great to see too. And like, yeah, see, when fans come up and they want a signature or they want a sketch or something like that, the the, the absolute sort of joy that they sort of convey when you know, mm. you're taking the time out. And I've met lots of really lovely people. Some of them I even call them friends, you know, who go to these shows and you see them every year or two. That might be the only time you see them. And they're just, you know, just absolutely lovely people. And then, you know, they're, they're obviously they're, they're into what we're into. They're into comics. So, yeah, you know, there's, a, there's a wonderful sort of uh, buzz around all that kind of stuff. So I, I, do, I do enjoy it. I, and I get up and I go around and see my fave little people in Artist Alley and things like that too. I've got to you know, I love those kind of events. I'm just still just a dribbling fanboy myself, you know. <laughs> well, I, I think you'll see a few at the free booth. Uh, we'll both be there. Um, so you can put us down for a, a couple of scribbles on, on, on the comics for us. Awesome. Sure thing. Um, yeah, it was... Yeah, I just want to say for myself, uh, it's been great talking to you. I've uh, enjoyed it. I've enjoyed rereading the story tonight and kind of um, falling in love with it again and then, like, especially spending the time looking, trying to find all these little... Uh, Little little clues and stuff which might you know give give something away for the next part of the story or or something. Um, so yeah, I've been looking for looking doing that. Excellent stuff. Great, thanks guys. No worries. So just before we sign off, guys, is there any? Um, do you want to let us uh, let people know where they can see your stuff? Have you got any websites that you want to plug or um, social media links that people can hit up to find out a little bit more about you and how you're travelling? Oh, you can hit me up just on Facebook, Jason Paulos. You'll find me, P-A-U-L-O-S. And I preview my work just via my personal Facebook page. Um, but you can um, see my work in the Creeps magazine, which is a American indie horror mag, which comes out, uh, I think it's bi-monthly, and I've been contributing to the last half a dozen or so issues of that, doing old-school black-and-white horror. Um, and that's about all I can think of at the moment. Chris? Yeah, look, I don't. I just do the Facebook thing. I don't do any websites and stuff. I'm doing some stuff next year, but until that happens, I keep a low profile. Um, yeah, I'll be at Supernova. If people want to find me, they, they can find me on Facebook and send me an email and stuff like that. I'm happy to chat and talk and blah, blah, blah. I won't give away anything that's happening in the story. <laughs> that we know uh, that you guys have got the most of, of the teasers that we're going to get. Happy to talk about process. But I won't talk about plot points. Yeah, that's, why you, that's why people buy the damn thing to enjoy discovering the plot points for themselves, you know. So exactly. Um, that's where I come from. And as I said, the other, the only other major big thing is Bonnie A B O N I E R Publishing in Victoria is you know, the, the Australian branch of the international uh, Bonnie A company. They're the ones doing that Sherlock Holmes, the Australian Facebook. I think they've got some stuff on their Facebook 
page about that, etc. But other than that, we'll just uh, that's they're the only uh, current announcements I got. Good on you. All right. Well, thank you very much again. So much for your time tonight. It's been really enlightening. I've really enjoyed it, and I germ has as well. And I'm sure that people listening to this will too. So, thank you very much for being so informative and, and so generous with your time. Uh, pleasure, yeah, mate. Right. Give, us, give us the time. And so you're both going to be at Supernova. Yes. Yep. We'll both be there. Oh, good. Well, we'll we'll, we'll uh, say good day and uh, have a good chat then. Good stuff. Looking forward to it. We will do. Thanks, guys. All right. Thank you. That. Thank, thank you. you very much, guys. Cheers. Good night. Good night. 500 years ago, he washed ashore the sole survivor of a shipwreck. And upon the skull of the man who killed his dad, he said, I'm mad, I must eradicate piracy, injustice and cruelty. And all my sons will follow me, so evildoers will believe that this man cannot die. The ghost who walks Enemies beware The phantom's always there But you won't find the phantom He finds you